that was awesome. Um, and the experience in the end ended up working out. The, the game didn't go the U.S.'s way, but no one expected it to really. Um, but yeah, that was absolutely the worst travel experience I've ever had in my life. I spent like the entire day I, tr- I traveled and also kind of went to a soccer game for a little bit. I was in the car for more than nine hours that day. I would never do that again. But it was a good game in the first half about the soccer. Now that's enough about me. But you missed you missed the biggest part. I missed the biggest part. They played so well, and I wasn't there for the parts that they really played well. After that, it was all Germany. I think maybe I was the bad luck charm, but uh, at following that point, the Germans really showed their, their experience in their class. I think Julian Nagelsmann, in his first game as manager, showed his experience at the top levels in the Bundesliga, and they just closed down the game. Once they went up 2-1, it was very clear that they were the better side, and they scored to make it 3-1 shortly thereafter. But the way that they exploited space and behind the U.S. defense showed a bit of ignorance in the way that we played because we threw numbers forward, which, you know, you have to do when you try to get goals. But if we didn't press the ball when we lost it, that meant there was so much space behind our fullbacks, particularly Dest and Scally, who I didn't think played essentially poorly in the game, but or especially poorly in the game, but they were constantly getting exposed because of the way the U.S. wants to play. And I think that made things difficult. And the entire second half, it was just the U.S. putting out fires, putting out fires, and trying to get to the end of the match. Uh, and it was an uninspiring end to the game, but the first half was good. Second half, not so much. You wanted them to be able to respond uh, to that sort of thing on Tuesday against Ghana, and they definitely did that. Yeah, the 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 Germany game, for a couple of different reasons, I think there's a couple of different reasons why it went wrong. I think, first, yes, this is a, a Germany team that's maybe not as good as the team that won the World Cup in 2014 or, or that the sort of Yogi Love era of Germany but you look up and down that team sheet, there's still quality throughout, drenched throughout this team. Whether it's Musial in the middle, Leroy Sané running at Sergio Dest. I actually thought Sergio Dest did a pretty decent job dealing with someone like Leroy yeah, Sané. Absolutely. Especially considering, you know, he was isolated for large portions of that game and he had to do what he could against one of the best wingers in the world. I don't think he performed poorly, poorly at all, but I think it's just the experience of, of the Germans and the way they were just able to after the U.S. scored, and then once the Germans got their two goals and then got that third one from UCLA, it was just like you have to, like you were saying, you have to keep pushing forward to try to get back in the game, but that's exactly what the Germans want you to do. Yeah, and if you don't take better care of the ball in dangerous areas like in the attacking third or in central midfield and players like Ilkay Gundogan get on the ball and can smash it forward and progress uh, the game in areas that are going to hurt you, um, then you have to sort of realize when and when not to take those risks i'm okay with it happening in a friendly um but these are the sort of teams that the u.s has to be better against if we want to you know do damage to the 2026 world cup no one's expecting the u.s to go and win the trophy but if you want to make a deep run quarterfinals maybe even semifinals you're going to have to topple over a germany type of opponent and we haven't seen the u.s really do that we saw good performances against england at the world cup i would say a good 45 minutes against germany here um, but that second half really showed that there is a, a clear level uh, that the U.S. need to get to if they want to be able to not only call themselves a power of the world in world football, but be able to uh, compete with those teams. And I, I think we're, we're, we're still comfortable step below. And it's not so much because we have a terrible coach and because uh, we're not getting the best out of our talent. But I still think a lot, perhaps the worst player on that Germany team probably makes a really good case into walking into the starting 11 for the U.S., uh, especially in areas of defense where the U.S., I would say, are weakest. So f- f- for that, it's not a great result, but I think Bearhalter and the post game, well, from what I got to hear from him, he was mostly echoing the same points that 
you know, look, it might not have looked great defensively, but we've got to do better things here with the ball so we don't find ourselves in situations where we're just chasing the game and trying to, I, I said the word put out fires before, and that was really what they were doing. It, it felt like a lot of the game was just take risks, and if it doesn't work, deal with it, try again. And I, I don't love that system, uh, but when you're down two, nu- two goals against uh, one of the top teams in the world, you got to do that. And Germany, people were talking about them like coming in uh, they hadn't won an international match in uh, four or five matches or something like that. And look, it's Germany. Look at the players they have. Look at the manager they have. Even if it's not been cohesive yet, they're going to come in. They're going to pack a punch. For people who are looking at this result and saying, fire Bearhalter, this is not the way the U.S. needs to play. Like, Grow up, first of all, and get real. Because that's Germany. Four-time World Cup champions. And we're the, still the U.S. So we have to... We have to be a little bit more honest with ourselves here and there. And people will say that that's like a you have a loser's mentality. No, you're just not no. delusional. I, I'm, I'm living in the real you're world. You're just living in the real world. Yes. Germany right now are a level above us in terms of the team, the players that they can put on the field. You think about for the U.S., someone like Anthony Robinson goes down at, at left back, and then you have to shuffle things around. You have to play Sergio Dest at left back, play Scali at right back. For Germany, just the, in terms of depth, the depth is there more than the U.S., and the quality, like you were saying, Probably the worst German player gets into this U.S. team, and yeah. that's not a that's not a slight on us. We're just not quite there yet. And no. I think a three-one loss against Germany. Yes, the second half was incredibly poor, and you would hope that you can put it together. Not necessarily winning a game against these sorts of opponents, but putting together a, a ninety-minute complete performance that you can get behind, and not just a forty-five-minute spurt. But then you wanted to see a rebound against Ghana on Tuesday, and that's exactly what you got. I think if you take the, took the first 45 from the Germany game and then the first, first 45 from the Ghana game, that'd be an elite 90 minutes of soccer. Of course, yeah. the United States beat Ghana by a score of 4-0, two goals from Gio Reyna, a penalty from Christian Pulisic, and then a goal from Fuller and Balogun. And this game was over within the first 20 minutes, yeah. really. Ghana, you look at the names on the Ghana and team sheet, not, that's not, not bad names. You know, you look at someone like Thomas Partey, Kudus now with West Ham, and Aki Williams, who's Who's been up there for Atletico Bilbao for so I long? Did, did he even touch the ball? I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. And then Jordan Ayew in the in the middle for uh, Crystal Palace. Not bad names on the team sheet, but this Ghanaian team played like this was the first time they were they ever played together. And they just played a few days prior and got pretty outplayed by Mexico in a two 0 loss as well. But this was a complete rout, and it was exactly what the U.S. wanted. Two goals from Gio Reyna in the first half. A lot of people have been talking about that for for obvious reasons. He hadn't scored a goal for the U.S. in over two years, and he's one of the most important players. I think he he showed his quality both in the first half against Germany and in the first half against Ghana, not only with the two goals, but just how important he is in linking up the midfield to the attack, how important he is in unlocking the defenses, getting Balogun in dangerous areas. Folar and Balogun has been very clear about how much he enjoys playing with Gio Reyna. And we've talked ad nauseum about the things that have bothered Gio and his game off the field. But on the field, he might be the most talented player this U.S. team has ever had. This, uh, At least in my lifetime, I can't see a player who's ever done the things that Gio Reyna can just do. And the game comes so naturally to him. He finds pockets of space and he finds the ball on the half turn. He's lethal. So for him to be firing off on all cylinders against teams like Ghana and Germany is a very good thing. You want that to continue. You want him to finally get some more minutes at the club level he hadn't played his last three matches were against u.s canada in uh, june uh, u.s germany u.s ghani hasn't played a minute yet for Borussia dortmund this season so you want him to go in there with good form now that he has and really continue that ahead of the november windows and ahead of next summer in the copa america of course 
But for this to be a response to the second half against Germany, uh, yeah, this is a, a great response. Uh, Pulisic from the penalty spot, never in doubt. Balogun, that goal just starts with the pressure from the front, something that was lacking in that Germany game because that pressure from the front wasn't there. There was space in behind the U.S. defense, and they punished the U.S. But when you flip that around and you start doing things right proactively, you can be up 4-0 at halftime. I know it's not Germany. This is Ghana. And looking back at this Ghanaian team, there's some big names on it. But this is not the Ghana of 2006 and 2010 with Michael Essien and, and Kevin Jean. Asamoah Jean, uh, Quadwell Asamoah. Like those, are, those are some generational teams coming out of what was once a West African powerhouse and right lately has been pretty dormant, have been still in the conversation in qualifying for the World Cups. I think I believe they've been to four lately. They're, they're regulars in that conversation in Africa, which is, by the way, one of the hardest confederations to qualify for the World Cup in. So, yeah, this is a good team and a good result, but it's a building block of that first half from Germany, in my opinion. And that's how you have to look at these games moving forward. They all have to be building blocks to something more because it's all about growth. It's all about putting your best foot forward for the Copa America 2024, which they have to qualify for against a couple games against Trinidad and Tobago in November. And then should you do well at the Copa America, I feel like you're going to have a lot of confidence going into 2026 hosting the World Cup. I feel like there's a couple of things you can take away from this Ghana game. Number one. This is an infinitely better team with Gio Reyna on the field in that attacking midfield role. Mm-hmm. I think even when Tyler Adams comes back and you might have the or Greg might have the inkling to run the Adams McKenny Musa midfield and possibly either start Gio from the bench or push Gio to the wing, I think you've got to stay with the the four two three one that's been and have Gio as that central cog because there's no player with the same attacking creativity in this team as Giovanni Reyna. I I agree, and I think. Yes, maybe the three of Adams and McKenny Moose provides more stability slightly, but I think if you want to, the only way you have some sort of attacking flair in this team, some sort of traditional attacking midfielder, it's through Giovanni Reyna in that cam position. And I think he's cemented himself. The problem with Gio is, yes, he's cemented himself now with these two goals and and a positive performance against Germany, but he's just got to stay healthy and get on the field for Borussia Dortmund for extended periods of time. Mm -hmm. And that's not been a given so far in his career. But if he can put together a positive stretch of form heading into this Copa America, I think, you know, Gio puts this U.S. team in a position to really do some damage. I think also Serginio Dest, the runs he was making from yeah, right back, just that, unbelievable. The, the, the right side of the field. Unbelievable. Against Ghana like with was t- Him incredible. and Tim Weah were incredible. I, I just wish Tim Weah got a goal. I, he only technically got one assist on the game, but he factored into all four. He was immense, and he played all 90 minutes uh, of the match, and he was just absolutely embarrassing. Say, do I think we all saw that that flick he flicks it yeah. over the head, and he just gives up. We haven't really had players who can just produce these moments for us. We've had talent. Uh, I look back, we've had players like the 2010 World Cup team. Most of that team was playing in Europe, but they weren't as impactful, weren't at, at these big clubs, and weren't doing what these guys are doing. It's a privilege to be able to talk about the U.S. in this light. So for people to like, look at us lose to Germany three one and think the world is ending. No, you got to remember what we have here. This is this is an unprecedented generation in U.S. soccer. Yes, they're not they haven't achieved anything with that yet, but you still have to enjoy it while it's here. Um, a front four of Wea, Reina, Pulisic, Balogun is is really good. That would that would be uh, terrifying to line up against in a lot of uh, teams playing against those in European leagues right now. That would be a really strong front four in a lot of teams. So I'm really excited that that's the case. As for the whole four-two-three-one and, and where Reina fits into that, obviously you have to pencil him in as the 10, as the creative piece in midfield in every important game this team plays moving forward. Um, the health is going to be a big part of that. And 
the shape for me doesn't necessarily matter so long as Reyna's doing that key work in the attacking part of the field, uh, especially coming in through the middle. Because if you watch his game a lot, he drifts out wide. He drifts into those areas off to the right or left of the striker, underneath the striker, even further out with the wingers. They combine and they're fluid. So it doesn't have to be a 4-2-3-1. It just means there has to be cover behind him. Usually that's a double pivot and holding midfield, whether that's Musa, McKenny, Adams, or even Johnny Cardoso, who I thought played pretty well against Ghana. Uh, Gio Reyna can have that freedom. That's 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 the key. It doesn't have to mean he's in the number 10 role or if he's one of the dual eights. He just has to be able to have the keys to go ahead and do what he does best in the attacking third. I think because Gio Reyna's been getting pro minutes at Dortmund since he's 17, you forget that he's he's still 20. Yeah, He's 20 years old. And yes, the, the, the fitness has been an issue for him early in his career, but I think you could say that about a lot of players. And then they figure it out, and they go the rest of their career largely staying on the field, and you got to hope that Gio Reyna is one of those players. Now, next month, we finally know the U.S.'s opponent for these CONCACAF Nations League quarterfinals that also serve as qualifiers for the 2024 Copa America that will be held in the United States this summer. The U.S. will play Trinidad and Tobago November 16th, the first leg at home in Austin, Texas, and then away in Trinidad in the second leg. This was a decision from U.S. soccer that the higher seed gets to choose whether or not they want to play the home leg first or second, the U.S. opts to play the home leg first. I think behind the philosophy that you run up the score in Austin, and you can sort of bunker down in Trinidad. Trinidad, just the, the name of the country gives me PTSD from that <laughs> fateful night in yeah. 2017. But these are different times, and I think the U.S. will bring their best team. You have to when you've got Copa America qualifying on the line. 100%. And we'll, we'll expect to blow Trinidad out of the water. Maybe you can call on the Pirate of the Caribbean in Jesus Ferreira. Yeah, why not? Why not get Jesus involved? I, th- I think it's important to talk about the U.S. kind of got a bit of a gift from Trinidad on the last day um, because they were in position to finish top of Group A ahead of Panama, who have given the U.S. trouble recently. Yeah. And, have, and honestly, since Christensen took over as the head coach of Panama, they've been a much, much better side. Uh, the latter half of World Cup qualifying and the Gold Cup, they were terrific, actually. So for Panama, to, uh, for Trinidad rather, to have blown it on the last day of the group to Curacao and finish second means that that's the U.S.'s opponent and not one of Panama, Jamaica, or Honduras. So I think the U.S. have gotten perhaps the easiest opponent of the four. Trinidad looked like they were maybe um, going to, you know, establish themselves back in the region as one of the powers that be in the second tier of CONCACAF. But that loss against Curacao convinced me otherwise, and I think the U.S., would already be confident in this match, but now should be even more that it's Trinidad and not Panama or Honduras. And then even if the U.S. somehow bottles it against Trinidad, I believe there's still, still, there's still a second there's a second qualifying route. There's like a loser's bracket type thing yeah. where they can still qualify. But let's hope that we don't have to talk about that because losing a, two, a two-legged tie against Trinidad would be a major setback, but we're not going to oh, yes. worry about that. We're going to... Switch over. I think let's do a little fun segment before we transition into some MLS okay. decision day. We'll do everyone's favorite segment, guess the U.S. men's national team player. I have a player for James. I have two players, actually. Oh, God. But we're going to do the the medium hard one first. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the same thing we did with Terrence Boyd last week where we you give I give you the, the clubs, clubs and you have to tell me the player. Okay. I think you should be able to get this. I hope so. Okay. I mean, you got Terrence Boyd first try. I got Terrence try, Boyd first which try. Which is insane. This player started their career in 2008 with the SC Freiburg Reserves. He was there for three years. He played 60 games for the SC Freiburg Reserves. Okay. Then in 2010, he played 14 games 
from 2010 to 2011 for the SC Freiburg first team. 14 appearances in the Bundesliga. How many goals? None? None. Okay. Then from 2011 to 2013, he moves to Hoffenheim. 45 appearances, just one goal. I have I have someone in mind, but keep going. I could be wrong. The next one might give it away. Then from 2013 to 2017. Is it in England? He makes the move to the championship and plays for Reading. Okay. 100, I, 135 I, I, think I, I, th- I, could, I think I've got 135 it. games for Reading. That, that was the biggest bulk of his career. The next team, Huddersfield Town. Next team is Huddersfield Town. Wow, Danny Williams. Danny Williams. Lock it in. Oh Lock in goodness. Danny Williams. Danny Williams, who went to the championship final with Reading against Huddersfield Town. Yeah, was I, re- their, I remember He was that. pretty that's much crazy. their leader in he that team. He was so good. He was actually. so good that season. He actually, and he that's when Klinsman brought him into the U.S. team, I think, around that time. That was after. This, this was Bruce Arena this time. Bruce Arena. And, and everyone was clamoring for Danny Williams to be brought yeah. into the fold, and he never was. But then he capped in the U.S. in that game after they, uh, after they, I remember after they failed to qualify the first friendly after against Portugal. Danny Williams capped in that team, and, and that was his final. Horvath and that team. was his final appearance. That's crazy. Uh, Dan, that I feel like you know you can always look back at any national team really, but I think the U.S. especially just because we have a weird dichotomy of players in low-level Europe teams and then high-level American teams. So there's like a similarity where we don't know who's better than who. Yeah. And we over like we we do this in MLS players and players like Danny Williams's level. We just overlook them for for reasons I'm not quite sure of. Like there are so many MLS players that if I look back and think, why weren't you a mainstay for at any point in the national team? Like guys like Ike Opara. Like, yeah. I don't think we had four center backs clearly better than him during the bulk of his career. Uh, I don't think we had six central midfielders better than Danny Williams through the bulk of his career. So I think that's a, not only was that like a fun one because he's like a under the radar guy, yeah. But like he speaks to a bigger issue about the sport in this country. And then he finished his career with with Pathos in 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 Cyprus. Bro, if you went backwards, I would have been screwed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to do the really hard one? Or I feel like we... I have to. Okay, now. let's do the really hard one. Okay, okay. This player started a career with Hoffenheim. With a little, little bit of Hoffenheim theme in this one. Okay, he played fifty six games for the Hoffenheim reserves between twenty eleven and twenty fourteen. Then between 2012 and 2014, he got in two uh, Bundesliga games for Hoffenheim. No goals for the first team, nine goals for the reserves. Then he goes on loan to FC St. Pauli from 2012 to 2013. 15 games for them, no goals. Then from 2014 to 2016, he plays 13 games for the Borussia Dortmund reserves. Scores two goals. From 2014 to 2016, he gets in one Bundesliga game for Borussia Dortmund. Then he moves to a team that I cannot pronounce for the life of me. S.G. Sonnenhof Grossapach, where he played 46 games and scored six goals from 2017 to 2018. Then from 2018 to 2019, he moved to MSV Duisburg. Okay, that, the German team. 20 goals, or 20, 20 games, two goals. Then he comes back stateside in 2019 to play for FC Cincinnati. And he gets in 51 games but only scores one goal from 2019 to 2021. And currently, he plays for Durgafors IF in Sweden. 43 games, one goal. Okay. I'm trying to – okay, the, the only thing that I, that's helping me is Cincy there. 2019 tw- – that's the worst era of NC Cincinnati, by the His way. His caps range from 2014 to 2019, but he's only been capped three times. Three. Three. He was capped in – I'm trying to find the years, but – Definitely once in 2019. Definitely once in 2014. 2019. So the goals, the goals number is not yelling a lot. The goals. It's. I'm not thinking this could be a very 
trash center forward. He, 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 so in 2019, he made his first U.S. appearance since 2014 in a friendly match against Jamaica. Okay, I remember that friendly match. We lost 1-0. I think it was Shamar Nicholson scored a screamer from like 30 yards yes. out. I remember that game. I was watching that game. Was that I, this pre-Gold Cup? That was pre- right before. That was our last tune-up game before the 2019 Gold Cup. Zach Steffen was in goal. The game was in Cincinnati, The game right? was in Cincinnati. That might have a reason why this man was called up as a Cincinnati player. So, the, um, But in his entire career, he's played 184 professional games in okay. the league. Or 187, he scored 21 goals I'm trying to think as an attacking of, player. Of Cincy's, of Cincy's team at that time. And I the no names jump off the page. Because they he's only so 31 te- years old. What? They were so terrible. He's and he's. What league is the team he's on now? Sweden. Sweden. Durga Fors IF. Durga Fors. Okay, I'm trying to think of that that Cincy team, and I can't. Like no names are coming to mind. That team had literally nobody. They had like Harris Madunian in. Yeah. No. Oh, God. I'm trying to find other clues that I could possibly give you. He. He was a part of like U twenty three qualifying for the twenty twelve Summer Olympics. Sorry, U twenty three qualifying for like the twenty twelve Summer Olympics. Twenty twelve. He was part of that. He was part of that group. <laughs> oh man, I was a big follower of U twenty three. He played. He played seven. against Czech Republic in twenty fourteen in a friendly. I remember that friendly. And then in twenty fourteen in a friendly against Ecuador in October. That one. Oh, re- oh, I remember that one. That was Landon Donovan's last. He game. was replaced with a sprained left knee. He was, re- he was replaced by Bobby Wood in the fifteenth minute. Is this? Is this Andrew Wooten? No. No, no. Okay, Andrew Wooten came back and played for Philly Union. That's what yes. he did. He also started his career in Germany and did that. That's a. Um, I'm surprised I pulled out a name, though. Do you give up? No, I don't give up because <laughs> I have to get this. Like, I really do. This is, like, this is hard. So, so he went in for Bobby Wood? Yeah. Did he play up top? No, he Bobby Wood came in for him. Oh, 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 oh. Okay. But we went up 1-0 in the, in the first half of that game against Ecuador. Yes. Mix Discarude scored. I believe so. I remember that. It was Landon Donovan's last game. I pulled up the game, game right now. I remember Enter that. Valencia scored in the 88th minute. I remember, th- I remember that game very well because that was Landon Donovan's last game. He was brought off for Joe Corona. Yeah. <sighs> he started. I, I correct myself. It, he came off the bench and 15 minutes into his appearance had to be substituted by. Uh, Bobby he Wood. played for 15 minutes yes. in this game. Yes. Okay, well that's why. Played for 15 minutes. The 2019, in the, the 2019 U.S. Jamaica game might help a little bit more. Yeah. <sighs> I feel I, yeah. I feel like he was one of those guys that was like hyped up as a young player, but never hyped up as a young player. Because he because he was at Dortmund and everyone was like, this guy could do something. I'm just, I don't remember the U.S. ever. He's having just done nothing notable as a professional that I could point you towards. <laughs> point like, to it. like, but it's a name I know for sure, right? It, once I say the name, you'll be like, "Oh, played at Dortmund is not helping." I the only Dortmund like American I can think of. We barely got any games I was at Dortmund like, pre Pulisic. There's no one. Um, 2019 FC. Cincinnati. He was born in Tampa, Florida. If that born helps. Born in Tampa, Florida. It was like, it was like. Kakuta Mane was on no. Cincy, but he was in a bunch of different MLS teams. I don't, I don't think you're going to get it. I don't think I'm going to get it. I'm, I'm conceding. I can't believe you're this conceding? is the first time someone's conceding and guessed the USMNT. <laughs> Do you player. remember Joe Jow? Joe Jow. Oh, my God. I remember Joe Jow. Joe Jow. Yes, Joe Jow. He played right back for, for Cincinnati. <laughs> he was a he was like a striker slash winger who they converted into a right back, right back to be able to get playing time in Major League Soccer, and he couldn't even do that. I remember Joe Jow. Dude, that's, I should have gotten that, Joe too. Joe Jow. I should have gotten that. Speaking of MLS Decision Day and wow. FC Cincinnati, FC Cincinnati are top the Eastern Conference right now with 68 points. 
what a season for them. But I think there are some other things to consider looking at this Eastern Conference, namely namely the New York Red Bulls (laughs) still alive somehow, keeping that playoff streak alive. I got to be honest, James, I thought they were dead long, long ago, but they have rounded into form possibly too late. But is it correct that all they need is a a win in Nashville? A win, and they should be in, provided Montreal and doesn't also win, and Chicago doesn't win by, like, seven. So the Red Bulls control their own destiny going into But it is is not easy to go to Nashville and pick up a win. And Nashville have something to play for, which doesn't help. Nashville uh, can play for better seeding in the playoffs with a win, so it's not going to be a cakewalk. I think people will remember 2021, the Red Bulls scraped their way into the playoffs. They got... Points out of 10 of their final 12 matches, including a 1-1 draw away at Nashville on decision day to get into the playoffs. But a draw might not be enough. Uh, It's an absolute uh, craziness at the bottom of the Eastern Conference right now. As many as one, two, three, four, five, six teams could fit in the last two spots. Uh, Montreal currently in eighth on 41. And then a bunch of teams on 40 points. The Red Bull, Chicago, Charlotte all on 40. City in 13th on 38, but a win for them. And they could leapfrog all of Chicago, uh, Chicago, Charlotte, and the Red Bulls. Montreal are playing against Columbus, who in Columbus, with a win, they could go to the CONCACAF Champions League again. So they're not going to have an easy uh, match against Columbus. Charlotte and New York City are playing each other. and the, or Sorry, Chicago and New York City are playing each other. And then Charlotte hosts Inter-Miami, and Messi's playing. So there's no guarantee that any of these teams pick up points going into the uh, final match day of the season. But D.C. United are in ninth, so they're already eliminated, but they're in a playoff Cause, spot because MLS is weird. Uh, that's a lot of fun. I feel, I feel a little bit for D.C. United, the fact that you already know your, you, you have to sit out decision day and you don't – like you've known your fate already despite sitting in that playoff spot that you're eliminated just that, because of you don't have that final game to play. That does help, though, if you're someone who's you're, – you're out on a contract – and your final match of the season was two weeks ago, yeah. and you have to keep training for three weeks just to find out you're going to be eliminated. Now nah, he can just leave now. Just so leave. that helps. I mean, the one or two cases that players may find themselves in. Wayne Rooney out at Manchester uh, at DC United, yes. uh, the Manchester United legend. That's going to be weird because I don't think they gave him like enough time to really get the group going. They had a terrible team. He inherited an awful team, and then they just put. Uh, Mateus Click and Christian Benteke on it and was like, okay, you guys are going to be good now. And they're not. They're a bad team from top to bottom with a couple of good players here and there. And then as for the rest of the teams fighting for it, Chicago went on a great run before losing a couple of big matches before the final day. New York City went on a big run before losing a couple matches. Charlotte have the uh, thank God for Robbie Robinson for the New York Red Bulls scoring a late goal last night to take two points away from Charlotte. If Charlotte win that game, they're in the driver's seat even ahead of Montreal, and the Red Bulls are pretty much done and dusted. So that's a huge, huge, huge draw last night between Miami and Charlotte for the likes of both the Red Bulls and New York City FC as well, who who need a win and then some help to get in. The Red Bulls control their own destiny, and they probably shouldn't be allowed to at this point. No, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a rough this, watch this This league season. is too forgiving. But then again, should the Red Bulls, knock on wood, not find themselves in the playoffs at the end of this weekend, me and every other New York Red Bulls fan are going to be looking through the entire season and thinking what one match could have gone the other way that could have given you the two or three points more that would have been enough for the playoffs. Think about how many matches this year we watched the New York Red Bulls be the better team for most of it and then just not score and then 
and then come away losing on the only shot. They well, the Red the Bull special game. is you dominate 45 minutes, but you can't get the goal. And, and then, then like the 57th minute or they so, score, and they first, score. First and only shot of the first game. First and only shot of the game, and then you press back the other way, but you lose 1-0. How, how, how infuriating do you think it would be for the managers to at the end of the season, should they not make the playoffs, knock on wood, Horton's down, they just look back at, say, the Cincinnati game where they gave up a goal in the 88th and 93rd minute to lose 2-1. If that one, if we only give up one goal in that game, we get one point instead of no points, we could go to the playoffs. Or um, the Chicago game, or the San Jose game, or the Houston game, where all these things sort of happen, or, or Austin even, where they had to come back and, and get a draw. The Charlotte game, where they went down 2-0 and had to come back and get down a 2-2 draw. They, they put themselves in so many bad positions earlier in the year, now that it's all coming down to decision day. Um, people are going to remember decision day if it doesn't go well, but look back at the whole season. There is about eight or nine matches that just one or two things go differently, and they get three points or get one point. So they've done it to themselves. They're in this position. It's their own fault. And now they have an incredible opportunity to just turn it around with one game. So that is so they should be so grateful and fortunate that MLS is this forgiving. But looking back, they should have gotten this job done way, way earlier, even with the injuries, even with uh, the suspensions to certain players. Certain you, players for doing certain things. You know what I'm talking yes. about. Uh, or for the coaching changes. Like so many, There was so much adversity for the Red Bulls this year. But looking back at just the soccer itself, it should have been done a lot better. They could have been in a better position than they are now. And I think even if the Red Bulls squeak into, into that last playoff spot, I think you still have to do a little bit of self-reflection about the way Absolutely. this season has gone. This has been the worst season since 2000. And how you tried to, to rectify your goal-scoring problems from years past, and you just didn't do it at all. I think Omir Fernandez, right, is the leading scorer on this team with six goals. Six. Good for Omir. Love but Omir. Good for Omir. Team MVP. Love him, but... Someone from midfield should not be leading your team, leading the line when you invested so much money. In, uh, especially in a midfielder who really his role in the team should be a spot starter, a guy who comes off the bench and brings a spark. Like, I love Omir Fernandez. I love what he's capable of doing. He's one of people talk about his impact playing for the Red Bulls Academy. Just everyone was just blown away by his quality and his speed and all that. And he has shown that this year and in the last few years since coming up through the ranks of the Red Bulls. But he can't be expected to carry the burden of the attacking prowess for this team. He's just simply not capable of doing that, and that's not fair to him. He should be part of a support system for another attacking midfielder, and I know Luquinas is the DP midfielder, but he's not even he's making less money than some non-DP players for this team. So, again, to expect him to, to, to carry the burden of, of all that attacking power is not fair to him. They, they need to bring in more pieces to this team next year for sure, and they already have a great supporting cast around someone, but they need a focal point in, in midfield. Similar to what we were saying about Gio Reyna and what he does for the U.S., the New York Red Bulls could seriously use a type of player with that profile, obviously not nearly as gifted as Gio Reyna, but someone who can turn opportunities into goals because the New York Red Bulls are allergic to doing that. The goals have started to flow a little bit more. They've won three out of four. They put five on D.C., put awesome. two past Cincy, and then three past Toronto. But just throughout this whole season, it's just been creating chances and then no one's there to finish them. Yeah. And the fact that we're talking about this now in 2023 when we were saying the same exact thing in Before our Before last year even started. In our postseason wrap-up postseason wrap postseason wrap video that we made last year, a big talking point was how this team couldn't score goals. And how are they going to change that? We were saying that maybe they might bring in a designated player or two. They might – did they just have to invest in, in a forward position? And they did, and it just didn't, just didn't work. Yeah, it was it was a it was a season from hell, as I think Gary Redman put it, on the uh, the arrival of Dante Van Zier. Um, and look, 
you always give I always say this you have to give new players into MLS two years it's a weird league you have to be able to adapt to it um, and Van Zier has shown in moments his quality I think if you give him a full season one without as much distraction and maybe if he's a bit more fit this year than he was or sorry next year than he was in 2023 I think you could see his goal numbers really start to go up uh, some of the moments that he put together really were spectacular that volley against Columbus I really think of um, the uh, late goal against San Luis was another big moment from him uh, I think I think he can be capable of great things but you have to be able to put them together on a consistent basis. Uh, there's so many examples of strikers doing that, even high-profile ones. Chicharito came in his first year in MLS was dreadful. The next year he's scoring 15 goals. So I, I think be patient when bringing in foreign strikers, but definitely, definitely add another piece to this midfield. Needs to be more creative uh, players in, in the midfield going forward. And I think before we wrap, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw an audible. And I think instead of talking some Prem, because we always talk Prem, True. yes, there's big games this weekend. you got Merseyside Derby, Chelsea Arsenal. I don't think we need to sell those games to anyone. Fair. I'll touch, I want to touch a little bit on, on Michael Bradley. He's yes, calling it, I was gonna, I was he's calling it a career, and I think probably one of the more underappreciated players in the history of the United States definitely, soccer. Definitely. People forget that he Carried had a very, a very successful European career with Mönchengladbach or Kievo or, or Roma. Uh, really just was a pioneer for this this program in Europe and was so good. He played 151 games for this national team, was a rock in this midfield. Yes, in the last few years, maybe he was a little bit past it, and he's maybe one of the reasons why we didn't necessarily qualify in Trinidad, but I don't necessarily think that's Michael, it's on Michael Bradley. It's on the fact that we had, always so unfair. we had an entire generation of players that didn't exist, which is the reason why people like Michael Bradley and Clint Dempsey and Tim Howard had to play in those games had at age to play as a single 35. pivot six at the, at the above the age of 30 where he can no longer run that's why it's it wasn't because he was he was so bad that we couldn't beat Trinidad it's because he was forced to be in an uncomfortable position because the players in the five six years age group younger than him uh simply were not good yeah enough. there was a gap between Michael Bradley and Tyler Adams that's that's the easiest that's way really to it. it's yeah. the easiest way to look at it would you you want to put someone like Dax McCarty in that holding midfield role I love Dax but I know it's it's is the U.S. men's national team but I think Michael Bradley deserves could have played uh, with Dax would have helped him. He deserves a heck of a lot more respect than he's gotten from from US men's national team fans. But I think the abuse has sort of settled down just just sort of gauging social media. The majority of people seem to be appreciative of what Michael Bradley did. He was one of my favorite players of all Absolutely. time. Absolutely. I mean from if you turn on this national team from 2006 to 2019 pretty much Michael Bradley was playing uh, in the midfield, briefly as an attacking midfielder under under Jurgen Klinsmann, yeah, as the as a cam. I don't know if that was a good call there, Jurgen. Not sure if that was the right call, but then as a holding midfielder too, just just a a, a really a player who sort of sums up that generation of players. Yeah, he was the engine of that U.S. team. Really, um, he was the kind of guy that everybody looked to when things went tough. Not because he was the guy who, you know was going to go score a big goal. He had scored big goals. I mean, the 2010 World Cup against Slovenia. The equalizer late is what people will probably think about most. Um, but he was just the kind of guy that was a born leader. I know I know that might irk some people the wrong way. Um, he's definitely the best coach's son we've ever had until yeah. Sebastian Bearhalter can turn it up maybe. <laughs> but the, the fact of the matter is he he carried the torch in a time where it, was, it wasn't a thing for teenagers to just walk into an MLS team. But I mean, he was a Metro star. He was, he was, he was he's the last remaining yeah. Metro star to retire, which is incredibly sad in its own right.
But for him to walk into the Me- New Jersey legend, by the way, for him to walk into the Metro Stars team as a teenager, play 33 games in his first season or first two seasons, and then immediately jump to Europe, uh, where he was very good at Borussia Mönchengladbach. I mean, we went through the teams yeah. over the summer. You know, he was very good at Borussia Mönchengladbach, even better at Roma and Kievo, and then return to to MLS and people criticize him for the move returning to MLS in his prime I understand that Jurgen Klinsmann was perhaps the biggest critic of that move but what he did was he took he took the worst team statistically in Major League Soccer in Toronto and not only was their leader and helped usher in a new era where they were went to -to back-to-back MLS cups and won silverware but he was also the key piece in bringing over names like Josie Altidore and Jermaine Defoe and Gilberto excuse me that's harder to say than you think it is uh, and then the big one in Sebastian Javinko, which is what transformed that team into briefly a super club in MLS. They're not that anymore. They tried to recapture that. Um, their strategy of just buying expensive players from Italy hasn't really worked for them. Victor Vasquez, I remember. And Victor, Victor Vasquez. Yeah, Victor Vasquez was a baller. I yeah. think he won. Uh, I think he won MLS Cup MVP one year, or maybe it was Altidore. The the point is, he was a big transformative piece in U.S. soccer, not as just a torchbearer from young players playing professionally but players going to Europe and then players coming in and really establishing themselves as a key piece for MLS teams in a way that no one had really done before coming back as an American international from Europe since like the guys who founded the league like Tab Ramos in 1996 um it was a it was a th- he's a jack of all trades in, in that sense and what he the impact he has off the field for u.s soccer but he's also one of the most talented midfielders we've ever had i think if you make an all-time u.s 11 it'd be so impossible not to have michael bradley at least in the conversation in that midfield with guys like claudio reyna and 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 the likes of them so i think michael bradley has certainly earned his place in, in u.s soccer history as a legend for sure and people won't probably remember the failed 2018 cycle most. He was the captain for that team. But you have to remember, we played a 4-4-2 diamond midfield with one central midfielder. Because Christian Pulisic was the attacking Nagby mid. On, yeah. And it would be Nagby and Fabian Johnson as the wingers or, or Bedoya. And that's something they would you run play on, as wingers. That's, something you run that's, on, that's a FIFA that's formation. A, I was just going to say, that's a FIFA formation. That's a, that is a formation you teach children when you don't have to worry about uh, teams running at you in defense. He was isolated in that midfield every time we lost the ball because Pulisic, Altidore, Wood. Are Why do we have to play with two strikers? Why, Why do we have to play with Altidore and Wood together? Because because one of them alone couldn't score. And because <laughs> and honestly, having Pulisic underneath Josie Altidore was lethal. People forget yeah. that because Josie Altidore is such a good passer as a striker and he's really good at holding the ball up and Pulisic was just running off of them with all his speed and no one in CONCACAF could defend him at that point. Um, but then we just left Michael Bradley isolated so much that he got all this shtick and yeah, he wasn't super fast anymore. But again, it's not his fault that there weren't any other holding midfielders in the generations beneath him to come and take that time away. But Michael Bradley should, and at least at least at FUVFC, will be remembered as a U.S. men's national team legend, a U.S. soccer legend. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to watch him growing up. He was he was the sort of player that you really, you know, as an American fan, when you think about who do we have, I think we have Michael Bradley. He's a hard worker really good on the ball and he establishes the identity the identity of this team uh i was a guy and a guy that i really was happy was american and not just a player i liked and that goal against the aztec will always remember oh yeah and i bumped into him briefly in june of 2022 at red bull arena <laughs> i came around a corner he was there i said i'm sorry and then kept moving so i'm sure he appreciated it was the a apology. brief interaction but he, he was with his kids and wanted to bother him yeah after the red bulls beat toronto i don't want don't, that yeah oh, that, after that, that, that was a 2-0 keeper, yeah. yeah that was, was a 2-0 but uh I think that'll about do it for this 
domestic soccer edition of FUVFC. We only talk about the United States on this podcast when it's yeah, me and James. Of course. A lot to get into, but it was a successful window for the U.S. They've got a big window coming up in November. Myself and James will see you next time on FUVFC.